Welcome to the Ohio Humanities Podcast, where we engage real issues in real conversations with scholars and experts from across the state. In this series, Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters, we explore the topic of civic and electoral participation, using history and jurisprudence to illuminate contemporary issues. This is Ron Bryant. I am your host of Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters. Today, we have a fantastic interview with Dr. Hassan Jeffries. Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is an associate professor of history with The Ohio State University, where he teaches courses on civil rights and the Black Power Movement. He's a native of Brooklyn, New York, and he graduated summa cum laude from Morehouse and earned a PhD in American history with a specialization in African-American history from Duke. And as a published author, Dr. Jeffrey's current book project, In the Shadow of Civil Rights, examines the Black experience in New York City from 1977 to 1993. Dr. Jeffries, I want to welcome you to Perfecting Democracy. Well, thank you very much. It is both an honor and a pleasure to be, to be with you. And we thank you graciously. From our early history as a state, Ohio has shown numerous examples of promise and betrayal. In 1802, African-American Christopher Malbone voted in a territorial election in Marietta, Ohio. More than 65 years would pass before the Constitution protected the rights of his ancestors and do the same. In Ohio, we often celebrate the state's role in winning the Civil War and its 3,000 miles of underground railroad. However, you have pushed educators to embrace the difficult task of teaching hard history. What benefits do we get when we teach the betrayals and what hard historical lessons regarding race and politics do Ohioans need to learn, doctor? It's important to acknowledge the strengths and weaknesses, the positives and the negatives as it relates to uh, history in general, American history particularly, and Ohio history specifically. Often when students enter into my classroom at The Ohio State University, they're very excited about early Ohio history. And they're excited about it, and rightly so, because they associate early Ohio history with the Civil War, and they associate Ohio with being anti-slavery. And so in the broader scheme of things, Ohio is on the right side of history, and they're very proud of that, and that's, an, that's important to acknowledge. Yes, Ohio was on the right side of history when it comes to America's original sin, America's origin of slavery. But Ohio was on the right side of history for the wrong reasons. And it's important that we point that out. The reason why early white settlers in the Northwest Territory that will become Ohio did not want slavery is not because they were opposed to slavery per se, because they believed in racial equality. They didn't want black folk in Ohio. They didn't want black folk as enslaved labor in Ohio. They didn't want free blacks in Ohio. And that's why we see in that constitutional convention as the territory is becoming a state, we see them talking uh, about, about black folk not being allowed in. We see these laws being put on the books that say if African-Americans are going to come in, they got to have a white person to vouch for them. They, you know, they, have to, they have to put up a security bond because of the danger that they may present to the larger white community. So that's an important part of the story. The reason why Ohio is anti-slavery is not because of a belief in racial equality, but because of white supremacy. Why do we need to know that? Because if we do not, 
then we think that Ohio was somehow different than the rest of America, that Ohio somehow rejected uh, racial inequality, rejected segregation, rejected white supremacy, and white Ohioans simply did not. That that is very much part of our origin story in Ohio as well. And the, and the importance of that is not just because it allows us to better understand what actually took place and the politics of race in, a, in Ohio from its founding, but it also helps us understand what we'll see in the late 19th century and the early 20th century up to the present. If you do not understand that Ohio has always embraced white supremacy, then when we look at racial inequality in the 20th century, suddenly the sources of it become mysterious. It must be because black folks somehow did something uh, not to live up to their end of the bargain. It must be some cultural deficit or some personal deficit. No, it's racism. It's discrimination. It's housing discrimination, right? I mean, and, and that is rooted in this belief in white supremacy that is as old as the state. And if you don't understand the origin of the problem, you cannot understand how the problem manifests itself in the present, and you certainly can't come up with adequate solutions to address it. And so looking at the good and the bad, the positive and negative is so critical because we still live in a society that has to improve. And the only way we can improve that society is if we understand the society in total. Overt racism in the South and COVID racism in the North. A mix of both, right? I mean, so certainly there's a degree of subtlety, but there's also very overt racism in Ohio, in the North. You, you go to Cincinnati, Cincinnati looks a whole lot more like Kentucky uh, than it does what we think about as being the North. I mean, you have race riots there in the antebellum era, and you have race riots there, or white folk targeting black folk with response in the police violence through the 20th century. And so I, I think part of what we do is say racism is something that happens down there. And even when we acknowledge that racism happens in a state like Ohio in the North, we often say, well, it's, you know, it might be some personal stuff or it's very subtle. There's nothing more blatant here in central Ohio than telling black folk you can't move into Upper Arlington or you can't move into Bexley. And that is not just somebody's, you know, one or two people. That's written in the, in, in the deeds of the homes, right? That's policy and that's explicit. You're on the record as having said tackling racial injustice is the key to achieving the democratic aims spelled out in the Constitution's preamble. You go on to say that to achieve justice, we have to come to terms with America's long history of racial injustice. And that begins with an honest examination of slavery. Why is slavery key to understanding the American democracy, even for northern states like Ohio? And how do we continue to feel its effects today? Well, it's important to acknowledge that slavery existed in every single one of the 13 colonies, right? Slavery is not just sort of America's original sin. Slavery is America's origin. This is the beginning. This is the foundation. It is what shaped America. Uh, whether we're talking about, you know, in Virginia, colonial Virginia, or we're talking about South Carolina, which emerges as a slave state, or a slave colony, or we're talking about sort of Massachusetts and New York. At different points, New York City and Philadelphia had the largest enslaved populations in colonial America. I mean, this is important to understand that this is our beginning as a nation. I like to think about sort of America's DNA and thinking about a sort of a double helix. And that double helix 
of America's DNA, when we look at its founding from 1619 to the, to, you know, through the colonial period, that double helix, those two strands, one is racism and one is capitalism. And when you combine those two, you get slavery. And that's what propels this nation forward. And so we cannot understand not only the origins, but also the evolution of America from the colonial period forward, unless we understand the centrality of racism to the American experiment. This is on everybody's minds, including the founders, the founders and the framers, the majority of whom were enslaving people. And you take a person like James Madison or Thomas Jefferson, right? Thomas Jefferson claiming ownership over 600 people, James Madison, 100 plus, George Washington, 300 plus, James Madison, who's the architect of the Constitution and Bill of Rights, fourth president of the United States, you know, he's a, he's a third generation enslaver. Like slavery ain't some side hustle for these dudes, right? Like this is their life. That's this is they who do. they are. This is what they do. This is what they do. This is how they make a living. This is their worldview. This is how they move through the world. And so if that is the case, they don't set that up. They don't set that to the side when they begin to create the governing structures for this nation. That is foremost in their minds. Uh, 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 Madison talking about, you know, we got to have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly because he's looking at all the things that he's denying these people, right? Like he, he, know, he knows how important this is, how important the value of education is because he's keeping a hundred plus people from having that, just like his father did and just like his granddaddy Ambrose did, right? I mean, this is what, this is what America was. And it's not just, you know, I, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. You know, New York had slavery up until 1827. Connecticut had slavery up until the 1840s, right? I mean, this is, these, you know, we think like, oh, we're on a good, again, the right side of history, right side for the wrong reasons, right? Even Ohio plays into that too. That sounds like a good title for a book. I may have to, I may have to get busy on it. <laughs> Civil rights and black power in Alabama's black belt. Race intersects with electoral participation. In that book, you chronicle how in the mid 60s, uh, black citizens uh, in Alabama fought to exercise their rights, notably their voting rights. What tactics were used to disenfranchise people in the past and how have we overcome if we have overcome those tactics? Yeah, well, it, it's important to look at these changes in um, voter discrimination um, statutes and laws over time. In the 15th Amendment, of course, extends the right to vote to or voting protections to African-American men. But, and that's 18, that's 1870. But by the time we get to 1890, the state of Mississippi, reconstruction is done. Former Confederates, white supremacists, Democrats have regained control of state governments in the South. And they begin to systematically rewrite their state constitution, starting with Mississippi in 1890, through for the next 20 years, every, every state in the former Confederacy with a majority of African-Americans, 4 million who were enslaved in 1865 at the moment of emancipation still live, every single state rewrites their state constitution for the sole and express purpose of taking the vote away from African-Americans. Like that's the only reason why they came together. And it ain't no secret. Right? Like they didn't hide it then. We look back and we pretend like it didn't happen. But, you know, Mississippi Convention in 1890, like, yeah, we're coming together because we don't want black people to vote. So we're going to pass these measures and rewrite an entire const state constitution for that sole purpose. Now, there's a, there's a challenge that they have. They can talk about and they do talk about it. And I encourage the listeners, all you got to do is go Google the, 
you know, uh, the Constitutional Convention uh, correspondence and, and, and like uh, transcripts and, and notes. And they talk about it right there. I mean, the same, we need to do the same thing in Ohio. Go to the 1802 Constitutional Convention for statehood and go look at what they were talking about, right? And each of them is like, oh, damn, I guess they really didn't like black people. Well, in, you know, with these state constitutions down south, they're doing the same thing. They're like, look, this is why we're calling this constitution. This is why we're calling these conventions. But they had a problem. The problem was the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment said that a state, the state government, cannot discriminate uh, when it comes on the basis of race, right? And that applied to voting. 15th Amendment reaffirms that. You can't deny people uh, access to the ballot box on the basis of race. You could do it, you could do it on sex, right? You, you, you 19th Amendment, you still got 30 years between 1890, but you can't do it on the basis of race. Radical Republicans put that in uh, after, the, after the Civil War. And so they couldn't use race specifically. They couldn't say black people can't vote. So instead, they come up with a number of colorblind measures where race is not mentioned at all. But they say in 1890, uh, the only way that you can vote in Alabama uh, in, 2000, in 1900, 1901, they, they write their state constitution, is if, for example, your grandfather could vote in 1860. Now, obviously, in Alabama, were no black people being able to vote. No, their grandfather couldn't vote. And that's called the grandfather clause or the literacy test. Doesn't mention race, the literacy test. Right. You, you, you all of these states uh, created these voter registration boards uh, of three or four people who were always white. And you had to come before this uh, this county board of registrars and show that you could read. And if you could read, then you had a literacy interpretation clause. Again, doesn't mention anything about race, but no black folk could come up there, even if you were the author of the document and successfully pass it. And so we see that there were, there were a series of these colorblind measures. Poll tax was the same way, right? Knowing that black folk, they were cheating black folk in terms of what they were paying them, that they did not have any money to pay the poll tax. Usually it was sort of $1.50, but they also made it cumulative. So in other words, it was $1.50 for every year that you did not pay. And so if you couldn't register to vote, you certainly weren't going to pay a poll tax. And so now you talk about 20 years, 30 years down the road, they're like, well, you've been eligible since you were 21 and now you're 45. Good luck coming up with $60 at the turn of the 20th century and you're working as a sharecropper or a tenant farmer. And so we see a number of measures like this being passed and made law, made state law, and the federal government isn't doing anything about it. But the goal, and this is important too, because this will change, the goal of voter discrimination laws at that moment was to keep African-Americans from voting at all, in total. It was about complete exclusion of black voters. But after 1965, when you get the Voting Rights Act passed as a result of the struggle of African-Americans that had been fighting for the vote for since these new laws had gone on the books, these new state constitutions, now we begin to see that you can't discriminate in the same way because you got to go through the federal government pre-clearance to make sure these laws are on the up and up. Now that will change as we get to the early 2000s uh, because of a Supreme Court case uh, that goes, that really takes the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act. uh, And that's in uh, 2013. But we see the shift after 1965. It's not suddenly 1965 sort of white Southerners and and, and, and those who would be political conservatives, they were Democrats in 1965, and they migrate over into the Republican Party by the late 1960s, early 70s. That they're suddenly like, hey, let's fully embrace democracy. Everyone should have the right to vote. They're like, no, we still don't want Black people to vote. But as the decades roll on, what we see, and we see them using different measures and mechanisms, such as gerrymandering, right? 
where you redraw the districts so that you can either pack a district with black folk and be like, hey, y'all can vote, but y'all only going to get one representative out of this particular area as opposed to seven or eight if they were legitimately spread out. So that's called packing or they crack it, right? You take a majority black district and then you break it up. So you dilute the strength of the, of the black vote. And, and so we saw that. We saw all these sort of mechanisms. Again, not mentioning race, but we know how it would play out. We know the outcome. But as we move into the 2000s, into this modern era, really to today, we begin to see a new wave of voter suppression mechanisms. And this is sort of voter IDs, decreasing the amount of time that you have to early vote. Right. So all of these mechanisms, unlike what we saw at the turn of the 20th century, which were mechanisms designed to keep African-Americans completely away from the ballot box. These new mechanisms at the turn of the 21st century are just de designed to keep just enough black people from voting. You just got to keep a couple thousand here and there, and that's enough to win the vote. And so that's what we begin to see in this in the current moment that is an extension of this longer history of disenfranchisement. And that's what we're fighting now, disenfranchisement. Many Americans celebrate the civil rights movement as a series of protests that changed our nation over the course of the 50s and 60s. However, we often overlook just how divisive the movement was in both the North and the South at the time. So how did people across the country view the movement when it was taking place? And how did the protests inform public policy during the 50s and 60s? Well, that's a fantastic question and a very important one. And I think one of the ways to, to, to think about the answer to that is just to look at Dr. King and how Dr. King was treated and is treated now. I like to say that on April 3rd, 1968, this is the, year, the day before uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, that polling data, polling numbers tell us that Martin Luther King was the most despised, unliked African-American in America. April 3rd, 1963. White Southerners certainly hated him because he was seen as the leader, although there were many others, leaders of the effort to end segregation in schools and public accommodations to extend the right to vote to African-Americans. They blamed him uh, for doing all of that. So white Southerners disliked him and white Northerners. By the time you get to 1968, the white Northerners are like, yo, we're not really that keen on King either. Why? because we think he's asking for too much too fast. That's what they were saying, it's too much too fast. And he's talking about stuff in our backyard. Remember, we were on the right side of history, what you talking about? Yeah, but you still created these slum housing and segregated schools. And so when King starts shifting his emphasis towards the North in particular, saying this isn't a Southern thing, this is a Northern thing as well as an American thing, then suddenly his popularity, right, begins to wane as well among white Northerners decline precipitously. But then if on April 3rd, he's the most despised African-American in America, on April 5th, suddenly he's a hero. And why is that the case, right? Uh, the poet, the poet who said, you know, uh, yeah, uh, dead men make convenient heroes. And that's what we really see with Dr. King, right? That suddenly he becomes mythologized, right? We, we, we latch on as a nation to King's uh, 1963 speech uh, at, at the uh, March on Washington and focus only on this, this, this tiny soundbite, this snippet uh, of him saying, uh, you know, I have a dream and, and it's about content and character of, of a person's uh, heart and, and, and we have to be colorblind. Like, yeah, and he also said that America has a check that's overdue. He's talking about reparations. He also says in that same speech 
that we cannot be patient and we will not stop fighting for justice until police brutality ends, right? I mean, like all of the things that, that he is talking about then, even in the speech that we want to hold up and wave as saying, oh, King is all this kumbaya and is about love and, and would never, you know, isn't talking about power and it doesn't have a critique of racism and militarism and capitalism. It's just a myth. It's all right there. But we have pushed away from that, pushed away from it then. And we look back and we say, oh, everybody was down with King and the March on. What are you talking about? That ain't true. And now, right, we say, oh, that makes us feel good if we, you know, celebrate King, you know, you know, the third Monday in January. But you got problems with young black folk taking to the streets when an unarmed African-American is killed. Right. I mean, that's so civil disobedience in the tradition of King. He'd be right there. Right. But but our our understanding of the movement has become so sanitized uh, that we can't even appreciate the kinds of activism that is an extension of that civil rights activism from a few decades ago. You're listening to Perfecting Democracy, and we're talking with Dr. Jeffries with The Ohio State University. Dr. Jeffries' best work may very well be his leadership as the historian and primary scriptwriter for the renovation of the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. So it's so wonderful that we're talking about Dr. King right now. That's the site of the assassination of Dr. King. For his academic creativity and effectiveness, Dr. Jeffries has received the Ohio State Alumni Award for Distinguished Teaching. This was the university's highest award for teaching. Congratulations, my brother. Thank you. This is so great. Many years ago, Dr. King did famously say, a riot is the language of the unheard. In Ohio and the United States are certainly no strangers to racial uprisings. Many people have characterized these events as reckless criminality. But do these uprisings tell us something deeper about our democracy? They do. These uprisings tell us something deeper about our democracy. They tell us that our democracy is far from perfect. They tell us that our democracy is not working. It is very much that riotous behavior, people taking to the streets as an expression, is an expression, when Black folk have done it, an expression of the persistence of problems, the persistence of injustice, and a frustration with the slow pace, the slow pace of progress. Black folk are raising their voice, and when that voice is not answer when that voice is not responded to when that voice is not acknowledged then people will take to the streets now it's also important that we don't dismiss that type of behavior right like we have to look at the full spectrum of political activism and political expression i mean that is an illegitimate political expression and in many ways uh and, and we know it's political because when you look at uh, you know, you look at the 1960s and really any of these major sort of urban rebellions, urban uprisings that often just target property. Look at the property that is targeted. You know, it's stores, stores and communities that often um, that had an exploitative relationship with people, you know, charging higher prices for inferior goods, targeting uh, most visible aspects or man- the, the most visible representatives of the state uh, being the police. Almost all of these urban rebellions, whether we're talking about what we saw this past summer in 2020 or what we saw uh, some 50 plus years ago, uh, the spark, the catalytic spark uh, was police violence, was police killing, was a police arrest, uh, was police harassment. And that hasn't changed. And so the fact that police cars, police property would be targeted as well reflects that political motivation behind these particular behaviors. And it's also something that we don't see. We know they're political. We know they're politically inspired, politically motivated, regardless of of sort of the value judgment you place on them. 
is when you look at the targets, what, what do you not see being destroyed, going up in flames? You don't see churches and you don't see schools. And very rarely do you actually see homes. Now, occasionally something, a business might burn, and a, a fire starts and it spreads, but they rarely have apartment buildings that are targeted. You know what I'm saying? So they're looking. I mean, we know that this is the, vo- this is the expression of those of the unheard. Uh, and, you know, a compelling argument can be made that it also uh, is effective. Like you can sit down all you want. But when people have taken to the streets, they have gotten a response from government. Uh, And so I think we need to take it seriously. What is it that people, that would drive people to the streets to risk their lives in confronting the police in these particular ways uh, and not get so obsessed over the loss of property? Like I'm less concerned over the loss of property than I am concerned over the loss of human life, which is often driving people to the streets, whether it's an immediate response to a, a police killing or it's the loss of life because of poverty, the violence of poverty. And so we need to address that. It is a reflection of the inadequacies of our democracy in the current moment. We're going to take it even a little bit deeper now. In a piece on teaching tolerance, civil rights activist and historian Charles Cobb Jr. wrote that he had become distressed over how very little civil rights history and the generation to whom the 21st century would actually belong to knew. That's incredible. How would a greater awareness of the civil rights movement help us build a more just America, both socially and politically? You know, it's so important for us to recognize what the the civil rights movement, what the African-American freedom struggle was about, because we don't appreciate it. You know, this wasn't just about challenging minor inconveniences like Jim Crow. The existence of Jim Crow undermined the very principles of democracy. And you could not have a democracy in America as long as you had formal segregation, legalized discrimination. And so the African-American freedom struggle was about getting rid of that, which meant that it was about making America inch closer to being that more perfect union. It's also important to realize that the civil rights struggle, civil rights movement wasn't just about black folk. Now, it was Black folk who were leading it. It was Black folk who were fighting it. But it was really about expanding rights to all people. And so we see that the LG, what would be the LGBTQ community benefits from the struggle of coming out of the civil rights movement. Women benefit from the struggle coming out of the civil rights movement. Uh, disability community comes benefits from the struggle coming out of the civil rights movement. And so it is a Black movement. It's a Black freedom movement. But Black folk have never been like, nah, this is just for us. Right? It's always been about how do we expand this thing called democracy in America. And so our young people need to know this. One, because of the tools. You know, history, I'm not a big fan of this notion of history repeats itself, but there are lessons that you can draw from history. Not wholesale because contexts do change, but there are lessons that we can draw from the civil rights movement and apply them to the struggles today because we're still working on this thing called America. We're still working on this thing called democracy here. And so how can we make it more democratic? How can we get more people involved in the electoral process? You know, that moment in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, or 70s, uh, that we call a civil rights movement, I mean, that provides a blueprint, a roadmap, if you will, for how to make this democracy look more like it should, as opposed to just looking like or pretending uh, that it is uh, what it's not. That's why we call it perfecting democracy. It's a process. It's a process. Without question, without question. But on the other side, who have we forgotten? And I I say that because we often focus on Dr. King 
So who have we forgotten in our popular narrative of the movement? Yeah, that's that's critical because you know for all that King has done and did while he was alive, you know he didn't work by himself. We have a little bit of a Messiah complex when it comes to Dr. King. And even the Messiah that we have created around him isn't an accurate reflection of who he was. And we don't talk about the radical king. We talk about this very sort of looped down, warm, uh, you know, smiling and grinning Dr. King. And that, that, now that does a disservice too. So before we even get to the other people, we got to recognize that this king that is not radical, that is not a revolutionary, right? That it doesn't offer a critique of capitalism, of militarism, of American excess, that doesn't propose solutions to poverty. That king that will offer it, you know, doesn't resonate with anybody. As a youngster growing up in New York and, you know, I was in the freshman, I first year high school student when the King Holiday, um, you know, was first uh, recognized. Man, I couldn't, I was like, I'm tired of this dude, right? <laughs> like, because of the king that I was being, that I was being fed, right? It had, he, had, he offered nothing to me as I'm trying to navigate New York, right, in the middle of the rise of the war on drugs and mass incarceration, homicide rate off the charts. And King had nothing for me, that king. It wasn't until I headed down to Morehouse College, which was his alma mater, that I began to learn about the movement in a different way and King in a different way. I was like, man, he has a lot to offer. And so that King we need to know about. And, and also this sort of fictionalized King that we have, the sanitized King that we have that appears on you know, McDonald's commercials also keeps us from looking at all the people who also made this movement happen, right? If we're just, our focus on King becomes this obsession with male leadership, Christian leadership, Baptist preacher leadership. And we miss the labor activists. We miss the radical leftists and progressives. We miss the grassroots organizers, the people who don't have doctorates. Uh, we miss the people who aren't connected to the church. We miss the people in the church. We're so obsessed with the person standing in the pulpit and we never turn around and look at the people in the pews. And when you do that, suddenly you're looking at nothing but women. Right? So where are the women when we, we're focused and obsessed with Dr. King? And those are the folk, uh, not just as in a support role, but also in a leadership role. A Diane Nash coming out of Chicago and then Tennessee. Ella Baker out of North Carolina. Yes. Serving yes. as the executive director of the of the of SCLC and then the primary mentor for SNCC activists. Uh, Gloria Richardson out of Maryland, right? Who who's, you know who who did not reject self-defense. It was like, yo, we got to defend ourselves too, right? Against state troopers. So, you know, when we, when we focus, when we have this myopic view of the movement that's just king obsessed, we really lose the, the, both the depth and the breadth of the movement. And when we lose that, we lose the lessons that it has to offer us for improving our society, making it more just and fair today. So in one of our earlier uh, podcast episodes on perfecting democracy, we were talking about women in electoral politics, and we discussed the many ways in which gerrymandering, or as we coined gendermandering, impacts women running for office. So what impact has gerrymandering or gendermandering had on candidates of color throughout the United States? Well, it's, a, it's part of a long pattern and tradition of diluting the voting strength of African-Americans. And, and this is why, of course, when it comes particularly to sort of federal elections, congressional elections, we see it most clearly that the census becomes so important. Every 10 years, the census is taken and state legislatures across the nation will convene and the parties in power, those that control the state legislature, 
will then decide to draw these lines, these district maps. And what we have seen, uh, you take a state like Ohio, right? Ohio is essentially, up until the last election or so, is essentially a purple state. It's kind of 50-50, right? Now it might be 55, 45, 52, 53, 48, leaning Republican, but it's essentially a 50-50 state. There's no way that the congressional delegation that represents Ohio, if these district lines were fairly drawn, should be 85-15 for Republicans in the current moment. Like that, that tells you right there that there is something wrong with the way we have drawn these lines because we've done them in a way to strengthen one party and to disadvantage another party, which isn't just about party politics. What you're actually doing is undermining democracy because you're saying not everybody's vote is equal in terms of its voice. Gerrymandering is really problematic. And it's also unfortunate that there were a series of cases that had wound their way up to the Supreme Court. There was one coming out of Michigan, out of, of Wisconsin. There was a case that was working its way up. It was waiting uh, in the wings here in Ohio that really would have forced the, the state government to equitably draw its uh, congressional lines. But then the conservative court, the conservative Roberts court actually abdicated its responsibility a year or so ago and said, you know what, this is not a, a issue that we can get involved in, that the states have to sort of figure this out for themselves, which is crazy. If there's a party in power that then creates these mechanisms to stay in power, to then say, well, y'all just got to go ahead and fix it. What the heck are you there for? If not to say, wait a minute, this is fundamentally unconstitutional. Franchisement is a violation of the Constitution. No, this is a dispute that gets to the heart of what it means to a democracy, what it means to be a democracy when we're talking about diluting people's vote. We're about to wrap up here, Dr. Jeffries, and uh, we definitely are enjoying this conversation here with Perfecting Democracy. For my last question in Bloody Lounge, you wrote that in the early 1970s, African-Americans across the country made electoral politics rather than freedom rights or as their singular focus. So you go on to say that the consequences of this decision are still being felt today. What did you mean by freedom rights and what is wrong with a turn toward electoral politics? Freedom rights are a combination of civil rights and human rights. Uh, that enslaved African-Americans, recently emancipated African-Americans, formerly enslaved African-Americans, identified as the crux of freedom going back to 1865. Black folk in 1865, with one foot in slavery, one foot in freedom, identified these basic civil rights and human rights that they said represent the crux of freedom. Like, this is what freedom is. And what were these rights? These civil rights and human rights. They were the, they were the rights that they had been denied while in bondage. This is why it's so important not to just drop slavery in 1865 when we're looking back, because enslaved African-Americans set the agenda for Black folk for the next 150 years by reflecting upon their experiences as enslaved folk, identifying those rights that have, that, that have been denied them and saying, you know what? Now we understand how this world, how this society works and, what, and we know what we need in order to prosper and thrive and be full citizens. So nobody, under, we got to take black folks seriously as political thinkers. We got to take enslaved folks seriously as political thinkers because nobody had a better understanding of what freedom meant. Nobody had a better understanding of what democracy meant than those who were denied uh, freedom, who were denied the right to participate in democracy, and yet were living in the presence of those who had 
uh, opportunity to enjoy. You, you think about James Madison, you know, writing this, you know, the, the Bill of Rights. He didn't have to read a book to know what rights were so essential to be preserved and protected from the government. But, you know, any of those enslaved folk, they didn't need to read the Bill of Rights to know what rights were essential to freedom. It's all the stuff that, that dear old Madison was denying them. So exactly. Black understood this. They understood this. And so that freedom rights agenda, as they move into emancipation, they're like, look, this is what we need, right? We need protection from bodily harm. There's protection from the law, right? We need economic independence. Give us some land. We need decent housing. Uh, we want and need access to education. We need access to health care. These are things that Black folk are demanding in 1865 at the moment of emancipation. It's like, if we're going to be free, this is what we want. And that agenda, this mix of civil rights, laws, uh, rights that are conferred by government and human rights, rights that every person is entitled to, no matter their social status, just entitled as a function of being born, that combination, because the Constitution doesn't say anything about education or decent housing, but those are fundamental human rights. That combination has informed what Black folk have been fighting for for the last 150 years. You're coming out of emancipation, they're like, look, we don't want to live in a slave quarters anymore. We want decent housing. We want our own family units. And then, you know, they, they find themselves through some compromise caught up in these sharecropper shack. They're like, all right, you know, we, you know, after a while, we can't be living in these sharecropper shack. We want some decent housing, some decent plumbing. We move to a place like Columbus, Ohio, or Cleveland, Ohio. And it's like, yo, can we, can we get out of this slum housing? And then you see people advocating for public housing. We, we disparage public housing now. But that was the only thing we could get in the 1930s and 1940s that had any kind of modern amenities. So that's just an extension of the housing struggle that goes back to emancipation. And so today, when we talk about affordable housing uh, and we talk about pushing back against gentrification and forcing Black folk out of longstanding and stable Black communities, that is an extension of the housing struggle, of that freedom rights struggle that goes back 150 years. Now, what we saw is that African-Americans really invest highly in electoral politics. And this is important because this is, you know, we, we look back and we got to make sense of it. And we have to question it as well. Because in 1965, if you were in Alabama, you were in Mississippi, the likelihood that any Black person would be better than the pro-segregation white person who was in office was astronomical. I mean, you could pick a brother off the street and be like, hey, uh, I need your sister off the street and be like, hey, we, if you were in office, you would be better than George Wallace. I mean, that's just the reality, you know, governor of Alabama. That's just the reality of what it was. There's nothing inherently democratic about anybody. I mean, there's nothing, you know, black folk don't have a monopoly on democracy. We're people too. And so we have to work at it. But the the, the scale was so unbalanced that any, any likely any black person was going to be better than any white person, given this long history of segregation and discrimination that they advocated. But because of that, what we see is that Black folk, once we, and this is moving from civil rights into Black power because Black elected officials really surged in the Black power era, is that Black folk, once we mobilize and organize and get African-Americans elected to office, then very often we're like, okay, y'all handle business. Go do it. We're gonna, we can stand down now. We can take a breath. Y'all handle this. The problem was, one, you always need uh, organization to keep elected officials honest. You, you have to have that. But also, there were real limits to what elected officials could do by the nature of their office, right? Like if you were a county commissioner down in Alabama and you finally get elected to office, there's limits to what you can do, right? If you were a superintendent of education, it would be nice if you can suddenly bring in into a majority black county uh, more resources 
you know, you're, you're an elected official. You're controlling the, the county uh, the board of education. But if you can't raise any money and additional resources, then there's limits to what you can do. And so one of the things that I think happened coming out of the civil rights movement is that we overinvested in electoral politics and that we got black faces in many places, including some of the highest places. But one thing that we didn't see, right, we didn't see a significant transfer of wealth in this society. There was no redistribution. You don't see major job creation. You don't see wealth transfers. In fact, you see wealth consolidation. Black folk are poorer now than we were 50 years ago in relation to where wealth was. And in the absence of that, there are real limits to what you can do in this society. And so we need then and we need now. And it's not that activists didn't know that, right? I mean, the March on Washington, this official title is the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. That's the economics. That's the labor. Uh, It's that once we got into that realm of politics, we were like, hey, y'all go ahead and fix this. But there were limits to what they could do if they were not, if they were still bowing the nation as a whole towards this sort of corporate capitalism. And so I think sort of looking back, we have to, looking forward, we have to really evaluate and and really reevaluate. So as particularly as black folk, as we move into this new Biden, Kamala Harris administration, you'll never have an administration where you just say, hey, y'all go handle business. I like, no, 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 you have to keep the pressure on them to do the things that are necessary to bring about not just political inclusion, but also to bring about economic justice. And that's where I think the 21st century frontier, the 21st century frontline is really gonna be. And that's where the conversation continues. But this has been most informative, Dr. Hassan Jeffries. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Take care of those folks at The Ohio State University. I will, of course. <laughs> Good talk to you, man. This has been Perfecting Democracy with Ohio Humanities, and we want to thank you all for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters has been made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which is being administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Ohio Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. To hear additional stories in this series, visit www.ohiohumanities.org. 